Today's reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom amongst the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God distanced for our glory from, t- from before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is God's word. My name is Phil. If we've not met, let's pray for God's help. And then let's look at this wonderful passage together. Father God, we long to know the truth about you. We long not to be foolish people, but to be followers of the truth who build our lives on on truth, on certainty, on the rock. And so we pray that as we look at your word, that you would speak to us and that you would help us understand the truth about you. Amen. Look, it... um, it shouldn't have escaped, it won't have escaped your notice that Christianity is not what you would call, kosher is probably the wrong word, isn't it? Uh, but uh, uh, popular, popular in Britain today. It is a, it's a distinctly unpopular religion. It emerged last week that our Prime Minister David Cameron, uh, during the, uh, the backroom discussions about the, the redefinition of marriage that happened last year, as he thought and talked about uh, the largely Christian groups who, who said, no, we oppose the redefinition of marriage, his description of them was a bunch of Neanderthals. If you've heard much, any really, of Richard Dawkins, um, the, uh, everybody's favorite angry atheist, the, 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 the professor, he again and again stresses, just look at the statistics. The vast majority of scientists, front-rank, world-leading scientists, reject all religions, reject Christianity as nonsense. He's always saying that. 
Well, you, I imagine that uh, most of us in this room have been some of the millions you clicked on the YouTube thing to see our favourite public intellectual in this country, Stephen Fry, uh, ranting on an Irish TV show describing the God of the Bible as capricious, mean-minded and stupid. Well, so what? Well, so very much, actually, because it matters to us when, we, uh, when we're thinking about where we're going to put our trust. If when we look around, the opinion formers, the, the movers and makers, the intelligentsia, the great and the good of our culture all agree Christianity is a load of nonsense, then it makes me wonder, am I an idiot for looking into this? Why would, why would I want to investigate Jesus Christ? Why would I think about putting my trust in him as an adult if, well, everybody who's anybody seems to agree it's absolute nonsense? And those of us who would call ourselves convinced Christians, it affects us too because as we go through life making decisions about how I spend my time and my money, how I conduct my relationships, how I treat people who I disagree with or dislike or who hate me, well, the Bible tells me what I should do, but then then I notice that everybody seems to agree that's nuts. That's not how you should live. How on earth can you, can you conduct 21st century life according to the tenets of, a, of an ancient book? That's absolutely ridiculous. And the truth is that we, we find our convictions wobble and our faith just wavers a little and we, we don't feel so clear and confident about making decisions that the Bible sanctions. And the church in Corinth, I think, seemed to feel a similar temptation. They wanted to follow Jesus. They loved the message of the gospel of of forgiveness. But they also wanted to be respected and liked in a culture that actually had wildly different standards from the standards of the Bible. A culture that lived according to a totally different system of wisdom from that which you find in the Bible. They should have, as we've been hearing the last few weeks, been shaped by the cross. That's what it means to be a Christian in many ways, to be shaped by the cross. But instead, they were shaped by the world. They loved what everybody else in Corinth loved. They trusted what everybody else in Corinth trusted. They valued what everybody else in Corinth valued. Effectively, they were trying to be Christians, but also be popular, fit into the world. And wherever you... The church is not persecuted properly. I don't mean properly as in the church ought to be persecuted. But where there's not real physical persecution, there is a real danger for the church that we will try to be followers of Jesus, but just like everybody else. And Paul says you can't do that. And you're foolish to even try. You can't do that and you're foolish to even try. And if we want to live confident, bold lives as Christians, if we, if we want to understand why is it that most of our culture, most of the people who we respect in other fields of life think we're idiots for gathering here to look at the Bible, then we need to take on board the lessons that Paul teaches here in 1 Corinthians 2 so that we can live bold and confident lives and not be uh, uh, terrified and, and, and waver and be made to shake by the disagreement the disappointment, the sneer of people outside. Uh, Just two points, really. Uh, God's wisdom is hidden from the world and God's wisdom is revealed by his spirit. 
So we started the reading um, at, at the start of chapter 2. We're, we're going to dive in at verse 6. But Paul has been explaining from, uh, from 1 verse 18 onwards that the, the gospel, the message of the cross, the central message of Christianity will always be sneered at. It'll always be viewed as just foolish. Well, of course it will. I mean, think about it. The message of Christianity is you want eternal life. Trust in a man who died 2,000 years ago. You want to know who to follow. You want to know uh, who is the person to, to give your life to their cause. Who is the great leader who you'll trust for, uh, for running this universe and judging the world. Oh, it's the guy who died on his own. Gasping, laughed at, mocked, weak, a failure. Who never had any power when he was on earth. That, that's ultimate power. <laughs> That's wisdom. That's eternal life. Of course people are going to look at that and think that's ridiculous. But that doesn't mean it is ridiculous. Not everything that looks ridiculous is. So look at uh, verses 6 to 7. It's just the way it will always look to us. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom. A wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. I think Paul really addresses two concerns in these verses. Uh, First, he says, don't worry that the clever public intellectuals all think Christianity is a waste of your time. Don't worry about that. It's always been the way. And verse 6, they're coming to nothing anyway. Soon enough, they will stand before God on judgment day. And you know, come judgment day... You and I will care very, very little whether Stephen Fry and Richard Dawkins thought us frightfully naive and really rather backwards and foolish for trusting in Jesus. When we're stood before Jesus in his blazing glory, who cares what the people of this age have thought about us and our belief? What really matters is what Jesus thinks of us. Not what others think of us, but what Jesus thinks of us. The other point made here is that to follow Jesus or to live as a Christian is to reject the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of this age, but it is not to embrace ignorance and stupidity. It's not to become uh, an idiot. Now you see that uh, the word mystery in verse 7 doesn't mean that the, the message of the gospel is, is just weird. It means something's hidden that has to be revealed to you. So uh, the contents of this box, this in Bible terms, is a mystery. This could have a ticket to the Rugby World Cup final, which won't be of any interest to a South African. Um, it, sorry, that's a cheap shot, isn't it? That's a cheap shot. Um, I might not be laughing next Sunday, yes, I know. but uh, it, Or it could have a poisonous spider. I wouldn't be holding it like this if it did. Um, I'd pass it to one of the Australians. They know what to do with these things. Um, who knows what it has? You don't know because it hasn't been revealed to you. That's all a, the, the Bible means by the word mystery. Not something strange, but something that you can't know what it is until it's revealed to you. And the message of Christianity is like that. It is a mystery. We only know what it is when God reveals it to us. Trusting in Jesus is to reject the wisdom of this culture, but it is not to embrace nonsense. It is to turn from what this culture sees as wise and to ask God to reveal his truth. That's what it means. It is not to reject all wisdom and to embrace ignorance and idiocy. It's very interesting, um, the sociologist uh, Robert uh, Woodbury caused a huge stir when in 2012 he published a study 
It had been about 10 years in the making. Uh, he had 50 research assistants crunching numbers at a university over in the States. And he travelled all over the world to do his research. And his research was basically, what makes for stable democracy? What underlying causes mean that a culture develops stable democracy? It was a huge study. And it's not been overturned. It, it's, it seems to have... Uh, people. It works, what he said. And interestingly, this is what he said in his conclusion. Areas where Bible-believing, cross-focused Protestant Christianity took root are, quote, on average, more economically developed, with comparatively better health, lower infant mortality, lower corruption, greater literacy, greater educational attainment, especially for women, etc., etc. In short, he said, democracy thrives where the message of the cross Biblical, Protestant, Evangelical, Bible Christianity has been proclaimed. And he goes in the second half of his study to, to analyze why is that the fact, why is that the case? And one of the huge things that he, um, he concludes is that the reason, the main reason that democracy flourished in these countries was because education has always followed the gospel. The missionaries built schools, not, you know, because once they'd converted people, they had nothing better to do with their weekends, and no one had invented football yet. It was they, they, they built schools because Christianity comes in a word, and they wanted not just the elites. Lots of groups have built universities for the elites in the countries they've taken, uh, they've gone to, but they wanted schools for everybody because they wanted everybody to be able to read, to think, to reason, to understand. Don't misread one Corinthians two. Christianity has never been about ignoring science and embracing uh, ignorance. It has never been for turning away from everything we can learn uh, about the world and human experience and instead just uh, locking my mind in stupidity and immaturity. God created this world with all of its scientific uh, processes and cultural differences, but they make most sense when they're understood in the light of God's truth. God created this world. And Christianity is, is not to turn away from wisdom and learning and embrace immaturity and stupidity. It is to turn from the learning of this world and to turn to learn about God from God. And don't think that this is, this is a charter for stupidity. It's not at all. Uh, he hammers the same theme, really, in verses 8 to 10. He says, if you want to know the truth about God, if you want God's wisdom, then you've got to ignore the loudest voices in the world and look to God. Look with me at verses 8 to 10. None of the rulers of this age understood it, that is God's wisdom, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us. By his spirit. See, his point here is look, the greatest political power of the world, Rome, the greatest religious institution of the day, the, the, the leaders at the temple in Jerusalem, they looked at Jesus, they met Jesus, they put him on trial, they listened to him, and they said, Yeah, he's a fraud. He's a political danger. Kill him. So don't be surprised and don't be overly put off and worried and concerned if the great leaders of our day look at Jesus and think he's nothing. 
It's always been that way. Now look, um, we've just got to be realistic. Because of what Paul is saying, because of what happened to Jesus, you are not going to find an agreed statement from the G8 leaders saying, Jesus Christ is Lord. You will not read a press release from the Prime Minister saying, the Bible is true. You will not read the religious experts on the, on, who get onto the BBC or who write the articles on BuzzFeed. By and large, you will not read from them the truth about Jesus and his resurrection. Don't expect the latest must-read book that everybody's reading on the tube carriage or, or the Christmas blockbuster movie to tell you the truth about Jesus. Sometimes, remarkably, we do find the truth about Jesus proclaimed by, by the powerful and the influential and the popular, but not often. Let me push that further. The pattern that Paul draws to our attention here is that the elites of the world rejected and crucified Jesus. So do not expect, if you want to follow Jesus, that the elites and the powerful of this world will think of you as wise and clever and one of them. Don't expect to be able to be thought well of by them and by God because by and large, most of the time, those who are popular in this world stand opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore it will be very, very hard to be both Jesus's and popular with the world. You can't be seen as wise by both. Don't set out to be seen as an idiot. Most of us do that admirably without trying too hard if we're honest with ourselves. But don't be too surprised that even when you just live your normal life, those who hold the reins of power, those who are the intelligentsia, when they find out that you believe in Jesus, there's that knowing smirk. Really? I thought you were, okay, I thought you were intelligent. Someone with a job like you. Okay, I suppose what you do with your weekends, you know. Don't be surprised by the patronizing put down. Don't be surprised. Rome, the priests in Jerusalem, they put Jesus to death. Don't expect London and New York to celebrate Jesus and put him on a throne. Ask yourself though, whose approval matters most to me? Who do I want to think of me as wise? People in this culture, now, for a few years, or the Lord Jesus Christ for all eternity. That's the choice. Now verse 9 is an adaptation of a quotation from Isaiah 64. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Now the specific thing that Paul is mentioning here is um, is really the uh, through the gospel the glorious future that God has for for those who trust in the Lord Jesus. What the new heavens and the new earth will be like, the treasures of the gospel that are ours freely as a gift in Jesus. But I think he's really using it um, not to make that specific point, but to make a general point, which is: look, God's plans are never what humans would think of. No human mind conceives of the sort of things that God does, and so. When we proudly rely on our ability to work stuff out and ignore God, we will never get to the truth about God. We'll never work out what's God doing. I mean, think of God becoming a man, for instance. Ever since the Garden of Eden, 
Ever since the Garden of Eden, humans have been relentlessly reaching up. It wasn't enough to be humans made in the image of God. We wanted to be like God. And we have always been grasping, pulling, trampling to get up. I mean, think of your CV. Who goes through their CV and thinks, I should, I should just play down my achievements a bit more. I should, I should probably underplay my role in that deal. Our CVs are an exercise in creative writing these days to, to make ourselves sound better. We're always grasping upwards. So, so given that that's the, the universal human mindset, who on earth would come to the conclusion that God would become a man, humble himself, and take on frail human flesh, make himself able to become tired and sick and unwell and even die? I mean, that's just, we would never think of that by ourselves. No human mind would conceive God would do that. Well, think of Jesus' death. Uh, humans, we filled the world with rape and warfare and judgmentalism and greed and bitterness and anger and lies and deceit. And what would we do if people treated us like that in a world we'd made? And God responds by, by taking our place and dying on a cross to forgive us freely for what we've done to him and to his people and his world. No human would conceive of doing something like that. We would never, ever work out what God would do by thinking of it ourselves. There's a, if you stand outside and look up at the night sky, there are 10,000 stars visible to the naked human eye before you invest in telescopes and and get very excited about that sort of thing. But just with your naked human eye, you can see 10,000 stars, um, apparently. Although I'm being, uh, somebody's shaking his head at me, but Google told me, so I don't care what a professor from Imperial says. But in London, you can see between 30 and 40 most nights when it's not cloudy and raining. 30 to 40. Because of why? The dull orange glow of 80-watt street lamps. We miss the spectacular fireworks show of the heavens, the August Perseid meteor shower, where there are hundreds and hundreds of shooting stars every night. We miss seeing the light of stars reach us, of stars that died a million years ago, and yet we can see their light now. And we miss all of that because we surround ourselves with orange street lamps and neon signs for soft drinks. And so we miss the spectacular display of the heavens. And you and I cannot see what God is doing so often because we are, the light of God's brilliance is just overshadowed by the light of our human thinking and our human ways. And so we just, we're blind. We're blind. Because we, we think the way everybody else thinks. We follow their ways. We fit in with their thoughts. And therefore we cannot see what God is doing. If we let ourselves be guided by the light of our culture, we will never see the brilliance of God. Okay, so how can we know the truth about God? He's already touched on this, um, but let's, uh, let's really press into it. God's wisdom is revealed by his spirit. We need to do more, though, than just turn away from the, the wisdom of this world. We need more, to do more than turn off the street lamps. We need to look up to God, and we need God to do something. 
We need, as Paul has already said, God to reveal it by his spirit. No, let's go back to verse 9. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. We've not received the spirit of the, of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Look, it seems to me that these verses express one idea that's quite a simple idea, but his his reasoning actually is quite complex. And the simple idea is this. We need the Spirit of God to understand the, the things, the thoughts, the wisdom of God. We need the Spirit of God to understand the thoughts, the wisdom of God. Let's see how he gets there. Um, well, here's a, who's the only person who knows what's going on inside my head? I'm very relieved about the answer to this question. Me. I'm the only person who knows what's going on inside my head. My, or my spirit, to use the language of verse 11. Only my spirit knows what's inside of me, my thoughts. My spirit just means my inner self, if you like. I'm the only one who knows what I am thinking. And as the second half of verse 11 points out, the same is true for God. Only God's spirit knows what God is thinking. He then starts to use our spirit in a slightly different way. Do you see in verse 12, the the spirit of the world? He says, if our our thinking is shaped by the spirit of the world, the zeitgeist, the, um, the, the spirit of our age, the thinking of our culture... If that's the case, then we won't know God, verse 12. But if we follow Jesus, God sends his Holy Spirit to live in us. And we can therefore know God. We can, verse 16, have the mind of Christ. And that is why we need this book, the Bible. You see, we'll never learn the, the truth about God by, by looking here inside to me or, or by uh, looking out there on the internet or the newspapers or the television. We'll never know the truth about God unless God reveals it by his spirit, which is why we need our Bibles. You see, uh, we need God's words. This is what verse 13 is saying. This is what we speak, the apostles, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man who, without the Spirit, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The apostles were commissioned by Jesus to teach the truth about Jesus, so that you and I would know it. Peter, Paul, John, the others were enabled by the Holy Spirit. And verse 14, you and I can understand their words that were taught by the Spirit because the Spirit enables us to understand them. See, reason is good. Reason is a great gift of God to creation, but reason cannot reach up to God. To think that our reason can get up to God is to think that maths can make money. As if if I'm good enough at counting that somehow the money will appear. There are a few accountants and a number of government economists who um, struggle at this point. But the truth is you cannot 
make money by counting. You need the money to be given to you to count it. And reason can't reach up to God on its own. We need our reason to understand God because he's revealed himself in words. But reason alone is not good enough. Reason can no more reach to God than counting can create money. We need God by his spirit to reveal himself to us through his word. And wonderfully, that's what God has done. He became the man Jesus Christ. He took on flesh. And after he'd lived on the earth and died for our sins and risen again, he commissioned his apostles to to teach, to write the truth about him by his spirit, so that by that same spirit, you and I, as we read these words, we would hear God speak and know him. It's a wonderful privilege. And he, he finishes then with a great note of liberation in verses 15 to 16. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. You and I are judged the whole time. You meet somebody new, they look at what you wear. They hear your accents. They hear your job description. They judge you. You have appraisals at work, essays at university. You go for a run and your mobile phone records your time. And if you're not careful, it posts it to the internet. You get people asking, was that a walk or a run? But we're judged the whole time. We're always being judged. And we're all different, but for all of us, there are people whose verdict rules our lives, who we long to think of us as wise, who we long to think of us as, yeah, he's all right. Parents, friends, work colleagues, course mates, teachers, online communities, whatever. We live for their approval. But the spiritual man makes judgments about all things, the things of God, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgments. We are free from being judged by men because they know nothing about God. And if God, if Jesus accepts us as wise, as pure, as righteous, as acceptable in his sight, then who cares what anybody else thinks? There is nothing more liberating than to know that God says you're wise and eternally you'll be seen to be wise. Who cares what others think? What does all this mean for us um, as, we, uh, as we close? Two quick things. Firstly, don't be sheep. Don't be a sheep. Uh, I have nothing against sheep. Um, I was keen that it was a cow or a sheep that got butchered, um, but uh, the but I've nothing against sheep. The point, though, is don't be a follower. Don't be a follower. Don't think the way everybody else thinks. Don't just fall into going through life, working things out the way everybody else works them out. Now, I think this is a big danger for those of us who would call ourselves Christians. We we say, I trust in Jesus for salvation, but actually, we live by the world's wisdom. We, we want Corinth to love us as well as Jesus. And so we just, we end up adopting the world's way of thinking. Follow your heart and be true to yourself becomes the way we go through life. When God says the human heart is deceitful above all things. And Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. We say you can't be fulfilled if you're not in a sexual relationship. And yet the one perfect, complete human being who ever lived, Jesus Christ, Never married, was never in a sexual relationship. We say you have got to earn your money and you have got to get on the property ladder ASAP and you won't be able to, you know, your life is not worth anything unless your pension is able to get you around the world a few times when you retire. 
And Jesus says the wise person stores up treasure in heaven, not on earth. See, to be a Christian is to have a radically different mindset from the people around us, from the world. And so we need to be very careful, not just to allow ourselves to have the same mindset as the blogs and the tweets that we read, the movies we watch, the people we hang out with. We need to expect to have to step a different way, walk a different path if we're to follow God. Follow Jesus, live before the audience of one, and you're set free from having to please the audience of millions. Don't be a sheep. Also, don't be intimidated. There's a challenge, but there's a huge encouragement. Uh, Don't worry about how foolish and weak Christianity appears. It has always been that way. Christianity has always appeared weak. It never appeared weaker than at the central moment when, when Jesus, the guy who it's all about, was hung on a cross and gasped out his last breaths, bleeding, naked, mocked, spat at, beaten to a pulp. It has never appeared more pathetic and foolish than that. And yet that was the moment of his victory over sin and death. And he proved it by rising from the dead three days later. Christianity looks weak today just as it did then. It's mocked in the media. Ignored by the powerful and the celebrities. How can, how can it be right to follow Jesus when everybody thinks it's ridiculous? But then all the cleverest people in the world in 2006, 2007 thought debts were a great place to invest money and that the world economy was in great shape. See, the great consensus of the great and good is not always, not always to be trusted. The elites of Jesus' day all agreed he was to be ignored, mocked, and discounted. But then he rose from the dead. The elites of our day agree that Jesus and his followers just a joke, a throwback, perhaps even dangerous. But then one day he will return. And the final page has been written. And God wins. And nothing will be seen so wise in all eternity, for all eternity, as having put your trust in the one who will rule eternity and give you life everlasting. Let's pray. Father, forgive us uh, when in our pride um, we allow our education, our abilities to make us think we can work it out. Father, humble us, help us to to trust you, to turn to you, to, to humbly seek your revealed truth in the Bible. Father, forgive us when we um, are intimidated, when we look out and see the world that rejects you and, and we feel shaken by that and wonder whether we're idiots for following Jesus. Father, help us to see that it was always that way. But just as those who rejected Jesus at his crucifixion, would find him rising again three days later. Help us to to know that this same Jesus will come back to rule. Father, help us not to be perturbed. Help us to trust and to live bold and courageous lives for the Lord Jesus, who one day will return. Amen.